Well, uh, we're going to continue our series, Jesus Is, this morning. And if you did not get a study guide, but you would like a copy, the men have them in their hand. Would you just raise your hand? Looks like we've got about 30 or 40 copies left to hand out. Many of you already got one as you were coming in. And, uh, but if you would like one, please take one. So if you'll take your Bible with me and to turn to Luke chapter 15, if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, there's uh, one in front of you in the hymn book holder. Or if you've got a digital pad there, iPad or phone, uh, Blue Letter Bible or My Bible. There are a lot of different apps that are very helpful for that. And so you use what you need to to have a copy of God's Word. Just don't let angry birds interrupt you during the scripture reading. And I know that's a temptation, at least for me, while I'm using my iPad up here, okay? So today we're going to continue our series of Jesus Is. Last week we launched it and we looked at Jesus Is Your Friend. We studied the story of Zacchaeus. We saw that Jesus is a friend to sinners, he's a friend to the curious, he's a friend to the transformed. What a friend we have in Jesus, and I hope this week that's been an encouragement to you. But this morning, we'll study together a great story that many have regarded as the the finest of all the parables. It truly is among the best loved of them all. It's one that people have probably related to very often, it's the parable of the prodigal son. Now, a parable is just a fancy word for uh, an illustration, a story that gives us a a moral background, a spiritual truth that Jesus would have taught. He would have used these stories to help to relate to the audience that that he was speaking and interacting with. And so the parable that he is coming to here in Luke 15 that we want to study begins in verse number 11. So Luke 15, verse 11. And he, Jesus, said, here's the parable, A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose, he came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, thy brother is come and thy father hath killed the fatted calf because he hath received him safe and sound. And he, the older brother, was angry it would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. 
But as soon as this thy son has come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, and thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead, and is alive again, and was lost, and is found. This morning we look at the parable that Jesus spoke, the parable of the lost son. And we see that Jesus is grace. Jesus is grace. Father, I ask for your guidance through the text this morning. Give us clear understanding of what Jesus is teaching to the Pharisees and the scribes. We pull up a chair. We listen to the story with great spiritual teaching. Lord, it's life-changing. And so may we hear the truth that is taught. Will you guide us in these moments together? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, grace can be hard for some to define, let alone for some people to even fully embrace. Now, Webster's Dictionary gives us several definitions that we can can look at. Now, when we think of grace apart from a Webster's Dictionary, we see that grace is seen all throughout the Bible, and it stands as the very foundation of Christianity, and it is the core of salvation. And by the way, today, Uh, We're not here for some religious ceremonial function that we call a worship service. We are here because of a very personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There's this, this scope of what grace encompasses with Christianity, and it is the very core of our salvation. And so why is it important to study this? Well, we look at what, how Webster has defined it. Grace, again, can be very difficult for us to define and wrap ourselves around. There's one definition, a charming or attractive trait or characteristic. We would say, carry yourself with grace. And then there's the approval or the acceptance or having favor. And that's to say, you need to remain in his good graces. And then there's the short prayer at a meal. Everybody is going to say grace over lunch. And then there's the southern expression of excitement. They say, good gracious me, did you see all those motorcycles pull on property this morning? (laughs) Another definition of grace. But I, I like how Google places their second definition of grace, and they give it this way. It's in your notes. It would be on the screen. But it's the, the free and unmerited favor of God as manifested in the salvation of sinners and the bestowal of blessings. Now, if your eyes just read over that or your ears hear me say that, your mind quickly can go into neutral, and believe me, you're not alone on that. Because many of us just glaze over the definition and we miss the connection. What does this mean for me? Like, what is this really all about? So we know here that what Jesus is teaching, he's using a very important technique. And he is not going to use, that's what I just, I love about his teaching. He's not going to use overly sophisticated lingo to go over everybody's head that's sitting and listening to him. And then he's not going to be so passive so that people get bored and want to be somewhere else and pass the time by. But he's going to be relational. He's going to be relative. He's going to be very purposeful with what he speaks and how he would speak it. Now, what he is going to say is is going to make sense, and it's going to go straight to the heart of the listener. Now, a parable we know is given in order to teach something very specifically. But in order for us to understand what Jesus is speaking on very specifically, we need to understand the context of what's going on. Now, when you look at Luke chapter number 15, you will find that the context helps us in verse number 1. 
that there were publicans and sinners, tax collectors. There were these expertise sinners, the skilled sinners that we talked about last week, that were always following him and listening to them. They were intrigued. They were curious. They wanted to know what was going on. And so verse 1 tells us about the crowd that is around him. But not only are there these eager, intrigued, and curious listeners, there's also a group of people called the scribes and Pharisees. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, as well as those who would interpret the law and write out the law, these were people that were teaching the religious law. They were upset and angry, verse number 2. The word in verse number 2 is the word murmured. It says that they were murmuring. They were saying, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. This same word is only used one other time. It was in Luke 19 last week when we studied the story of Zacchaeus. You remember last week we looked at this word in the Greek and the word murmur there. We talked about how it was only those two times, but it was such a strong word. This, this was not just some kind of little complaint among the crowd. It was not like, why is he eating with them again? Or why is he meeting with them? It was a very vicious attack with their words and their looks about why would this Jesus be sitting with these sinners? It would be in today, he, they would be saying, why is Jesus going to PDQ to eat chicken fingers with a bunch of clocks? This does not make sense. They were very angry about it. Well, verse number three, as Jesus knows their hearts, he is going to respond in such a way to this religious crowd by telling them a story. And he actually tells them three in a row. The first story is in verse 4 through 7, and he is speaking the story of the lost sheep. And then in verses 8 through 10, he's going to tell the story of the lost coin. And it's interesting how he's going to pick these very important stories. Now, we have to understand that this, the Bible is, a, is from an ancient Near Eastern book, and, and so the context or the, the cultural difference we have to wrap our mind around. Because we can't just grab this story and put it in our cultural setting or put it in our lingo or wrap our mind around it in our way because then we lose exactly what Jesus, the power of what Jesus is teaching. The story, the parable of the sheep and the coin, it, it exhibits God as the seeker, looking. There was the one who left the 99 to go to find the one. It was the woman looking in all the, the cracks and corners of her house to find the lost coin. The sheep, the coin could not respond back, but is a picture of God seeking that which was lost. Then the story of the lost son. It gives us both the seeker, God, going after the sinner, that which is lost, but it also shows man's responsibility of salvation. It shows man's sin. It shows man's rebellion. It shows then man's journey to realizing what has happened and their emptiness and their need. It shows man's repentance and then restoration. So all of this is built within the context and story of what God or Jesus is wanting clearly to communicate. So God, he loves bad people. <laughs> and the religious leaders don't like that. Jesus would, would celebrate sinners. He, he didn't celebrate their sin, but he would be with them. He would talk with them. He would eat with them. He would minister them. He would teach them. He would bring them to a place of realizing their need. And so they couldn't believe that he celebrated them. But now if Jesus would chastise them, the Pharisees would, would buy into that. They would like that. 
They've got something coming to them, and Jesus is finally going to step up to bat and chastise them. But the Pharisees could not buy the fact that he celebrated them. Make them pay for their evil? Definitely, yes. Make them pay for their evil. Make them feel the disgrace. Make them feel hopeless. But that's not what Jesus did. See, Jesus was going to love them. And so what we find here is something so beautiful with grace. Jesus is going to tell the story to help the father's response, a father's love, a father's dedication, a father's perseverance. It is Jesus is grace. Verse 11 through 16, number one, you see the shameless rebellion. The shameless rebellion. The story opens with a description that there was a man with two sons. And the focal point starts right away on the younger son. It's focusing on how he is selfish. Uh, He is worldly. He is lost. And he is going to be described as a prodigal, which means he was extravagantly self-indulgent. He was a wasteful person. Now, what comes next is surprising for the youngest son, what he's going to do. And really, in verse number 12, what Jesus was telling to the Pharisees and scribes, this would have blown them out of the water. Because he says that the young man said, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. Now, this would have shocked the men. They would have thought, this is outrageous and unheard of. This would have been a, vile, a, a violation against the fifth commandment, honor thy father and mother. Now remember, scribes, Pharisees, living by the very little bit of the law. And so for you to tell me that some young son is, is, is commanding, demanding to give the portion that falls to him, this would have been disrespectful. It, expe- it lacked love and gratitude. Basically, in this culture, for a son to say this to his father would be for the son to be saying, I wish you were dead, and I now had my inheritance. That's what he's saying. Now, some of you are like, well, yeah, I just heard that last week from my teenage son, you know? Well, hopefully they didn't mean it. Their heart needs to be dealt with. But in this situation, the son is saying, I wish you were dead. I want my portion. You mean nothing to me. Now, Thomas Luxley said, Huxley said, a man's worst difficulties begin when he is able to do just as he likes. Isn't that amazing? That is an amazing thought. In verse number 13, it says, not only has he received it, then not many, not many days. This attitude of rebellion did not take very long to snowball. You know, in our culture, there's been that same kind of snowball effect. It was you who, are, who have lived a few decades, you know, like seven or eight, you who know life from beginning to end and, and can see how it all evolves, the last decade's been pretty brutal, hasn't it? I mean, think about the last decade and how culture and society and wickedness has just had a snowball effect. Christianity is being bashed left and right on primetime TV. And we as Christians have to take a bold stand. We cannot throw our money and support to a group of people that are going to defile the name of Jesus Christ and attack the very core of our belief system. Now, that's hard because we love our entertainment and we want to have our, our dab of all the entertainment options. But there are so many people who are against this in our world. There are so many people who hate Christianity, so many people who hate God, and they hate God's church. 
They don't want anything to do with Jesus. They will blaspheme his name, and they will take out whoever they can who claim the name of Jesus Christ. So our society is snowballing. Rebellion is building, and the world looks so drastically different. But we are going to continue to be attacked. So what we need to do is just buckle up, and we need to make sure that we understand it's not going to get better. So how will we stand in the day of adversity? How will we stand for righteousness? How will we promote that which is right? How will we continue to have a voice in a world that doesn't want to hear? How will we share the love of Jesus and take the power of the gospel to ears that need to hear and hearts that need to be changed? The prodigal learned the hard way that you cannot enjoy the things money can buy if you ignore the things money cannot buy. As if it weren't not bad enough. If it weren't bad enough that he dishonored his father, he abandoned his responsibilities to his family, he, uh, he set out on a wasteful adventure to fill the sinful pleasures of his heart, he then travels, the Bible tells us, to a distant country. Now, many of you in here, you're like, ah, distant country. If I had the money, I would travel. How many of you would love to go to France? Uh, anybody want to go to Paris? All right, a few of you. How many of you would love to just leave the country for a trip? Anybody like that? Okay, you just love to go see sights to the far-off country. All right, well, here, this text of the far country was actually in reference to the territory outside of Israel. This would have been a place where he would not have had accountability, a place where he would have been far from his father, his family, and anyone who would have known him. And so he went to a distant country, what to do? But to waste his substance with riotous living. And so he threw his estate away with reckless, wasteful, corrupt lifestyle. And then two disasters happened. It was the perfect storm that brought him to a place of realization of his heart and his wickedness. He lost all of his funds, he had nothing to eat and nowhere to turn, and a famine came into the land. Both of these circumstances brought him to a realization that the pleasures of his sin was always fleeting. Hebrews eleven twenty five, The pleasures of sin are just for a season. And so now he's coming to this place where the sinful party was over. The harsh realities are hitting him quickly. Desperation begins to set in. Hope and help was long gone. The crowd that he had bought for him to be companions with had now left. His family doesn't know where he's at. He can't even get a job to work for somebody. If he does, it's working with the pigs. He doesn't have any food to eat. He begins to think to himself, why am I doing the very thing to some stranger that I'm not willing to do with my father? And that's go to work. So when the resources ran out and his friends were gone, the famine came and he was working for a stranger he finally came to his senses. Now, folks, don't forget that sin always leaves people empty and in despair. Some here today, maybe you're living in the pleasures of that sin. Maybe you know what that struggle is or you know what that indulgence is. And you're living in it, but you realize that it's going to come to an end. And you know that it's fleeting. And you realize that one day you'll wake up and you'll be empty and in despair. Sin promises freedom, but only brings truly slavery. It promises success, but actually brings failure. Sin promises life, but the Bible says that the wages and payment and the earnings of our sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. 
We've heard that saying for many years. Something had to give and something had to change, and that's number two. Verse 17 through 19 is the shameful reality. When God is left out of our lives, the reality of enslavement begins to push away any of the shallow enjoyment. When sin is rampant in our life, the enjoyment fades away when we see the enslavement that we're in. Verse 17 says, and when he came to himself. (laughs) So he finally comes to his senses. Anybody ever had that experience? Have you ever said, oh, I finally came to my senses. I've been there before. Or some of you are thinking, I'm just praying my child will finally come to their senses. And you're thinking that right now. Or my husband. Oh, no, ladies, you're thinking. So he plans his approach to repent to his dad. And he wants to make things right. So he may have prepared himself with a little pep talk. He's in the midst of despair. He's trying to figure out what he's going to say. He probably sits down with a piece of uh, papyrus and and a reed pen, and he he begins to write things down. He he starts with, uh, Dear Dad, you're the best in the land, and I sure miss... No, he crumbles it up. He's like, that's that's not the approach. If you know my dad, that's not going to work. He says again, dearest father, if I lined up all the fathers in the world, I would always pick you. No, he says, that's a Valentine's Day card. I'm not going to do that one. That's stupid too. So then he says, hey, dad, um, hey, dad, I sure do miss hanging out with you in the backyard. Oh, that sounds cheesy. Finally, he comes to the place. He says, I need to just get to the point. He says, father, I have sinned against heaven. He realized he had sinned against God. He says, I sinned against heaven and before thee. And I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And I think, oh, wow. That's, that's it. That is top notch right there. But then we begin to digest it a little bit. Let me see. He says, I am not worthy. Really? Not worthy? You're, you're going to put that into it? I mean, how many of you have children living at home? Would you raise your hand? Children living in your home? All right, so let's just use this as an example. What if your son or daughter living in your home comes up to you and says, Mom, parental figure, Dad, whoever you might be, I think I finally got it. I think I finally achieved it. I mean, I'm getting good grades. I've got a really good attitude. I've been doing pretty well. I'm getting along with my siblings. I think I'm really now worthy. Maybe just now I'm worthy to be your child. And we think, worthy? Are you kidding me? You're not worthy to be. Now, now go eat the breakfast I paid for. Put on the clothes I bought for you. Go ride your bike that we just bought last week. Put on the pajamas that we got you last time. We think, worthy? No, but we would do anything for our children. Our children mean a lot to us. We would die for our children. We sacrifice for our children. Our children don't have to be worthy to be called our son or our daughter. The prodigal son was far from being worthy to be his son. I love the picture here. Because when we think of us, sons and daughters of God, are we ever worthy? Are we ever worthy of what Jesus Christ did on the cross? When he gave his very life for us? When he sacrificed everything of who he was for us, for that sin? Do you think we're worthy of Jesus living a sinless life here on earth? Being crucified and buried, was that really something we're worthy of? Are you really worthy of Jesus being grace to you 
Am I really worthy, Jesus, extending his love to me? So when we look at this, we find an amazing picture of the fact that this son was not worthy to be called his son. No more than you and I are worthy to be called the sons of God. But that's why Jesus paid the price. Because we're his kids. God loves us. He died for us. He will do anything for us to get a hold of our attention, to do that which is good for us. It's never about, been about being good or bad, and it never will be. Being a son or daughter has nothing to do with being worthy. We are the sons and daughters of God by being born again, not by being worthy. That's why Jesus said, ye must be born again. It's about a birth, not about worth. Because the reality is, I'll never be worthy. Now grace steps in. And spiritual birth happens because of grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so grace with faith, plus nothing else, no works, nothing good that we can do, it doesn't matter our past. It doesn't matter our present. It doesn't matter what we bring to the table. It doesn't matter how long I've attended church. It doesn't matter what church I'm a member of. It's about me putting my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal salvation. The question we have to ask ourselves is, what will I do with Jesus? If I just look to Jesus as a good person or a, a, a good prophet or was a good figure in history, if I think he was a good teacher or he hung out with a bunch of weird guys called disciples and lived his life for a little while, if that's what I picture Jesus as, I've totally missed the point. Because Jesus is not only your friend, Jesus is grace. And not only is Jesus grace, but Jesus is the sacrifice. And not only is Jesus the sacrifice for all the world, Jesus is alive. And Jesus overcame death, the grave, and sin. He won victory so that we can have that victory in him. And then with our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, God looks to us with our advocate beside us called Jesus as he claims our, our case. And he says, this man can be found innocent. The substitute was Jesus, and it's not as if we didn't sin. Justification is not just as if I didn't sin. Justification, that salvation says, I am a sinner, I did sin, but Jesus removes that sin. Jesus steps in to be that substitute. He's tagged and he said, now God will look to me, to you, as that righteousness. And so we have that blessed hope in Jesus Christ. Grace is a person Grace runs, grace meets us, and last, grace brings the shameless restoration. The shameless restoration. I love the picture of the Father. In verse 20, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Jesus indicates that the father had been waiting, watching, hoping that the son would return. The scribes and Pharisees would have expected it so differently. The scribes and Pharisees would have expected the story to unfold that the father would not have been waiting. The father would not have been watching. The father would not have been anticipating a, a return. But that the father would have gone along his own life building his own honor. And if his younger son ever came home and approached him, he would refuse to see him. 
And not only refuse to see him, but call for the young son to sit outside of the family gate in the village, waiting for the scorn of all of those who would cross his path. And then, after experiencing all the dishonor and disgrace that that young man could take, then maybe, just maybe, the father would find himself to have a brief conversation with this rebel with this individual who had turned his back to the one who had taken his riches and lived in the pleasures of the world. That's what the scribes and Pharisees would expect. (laughs) And that's why Jesus gives them the complete opposite. Because Jesus says that grace waited at the door. Grace looked beyond the near and to the far. Grace had hope with anticipation. Grace was eager and waiting. And the Bible tells us that the father would see him from a distance. And when he saw him from a distance, he ran. Now understand this analogy or this story. Because Middle Eastern noblemen did not run. They still do not run. When Jesus told them this, the the Pharisees and scribes must have gasped. When Jesus said the father saw him afar off and he ran to him, they would have, what? They would have been shocked by this. The word ran in this text is the same Greek word that is used in 1 Corinthians 24, uh, 9, verse 24 and 26, speaking about running in a race. Running in a race is not just a casual jog. Oh, I can't wait to see him. It's coming. It was a full-fledged sprint. The father made a full-fledged sprint. Why is this a big deal? Middle Eastern noblemen did not run. Why did they not run? Well, the men and women were wearing the long robes. They would have had to take of their robes and they would have tied them or at least grabbed them so that they could run freely in their Nike sandals. And as they're running in their Nike sandals, there's exposure of their legs. This would have been something that was frowned upon and something that was not acceptable. So it brought shame to the father. Why did the father want to go to the son? When he saw the son afar off, the father did not want the son to enter back into the village to get all the scorn of the villagers who knew exactly what had happened with this guy. Here he comes. Did you live it up? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, you'd rather your father be dead, don't you? No, the father wanted the young man to be able to be free from all of that. So as he bound his robe and tied it and ran, he sprinted. He did not jog. It was not casual. He had a goal and a name, and it was after his son. And he went after him. And when he got to him, the Bible tells us that he embraced him, hugged his neck, and kissed him repeatedly. Just do you remember where this young man came from? He did not walk out of the lobby of the Hilton that morning, walking home to his dad. He climbed over a fence from the pig pen that he had just been feeding the pigs. This young man was filthy. He was dirty. His rags were torn. He did not look acceptable, but the father had no concern. He hugged him. He embraced him. He kissed his dirty, stinking cheeks and loved on him so that he would know all was good. When he brought him back, the celebration began. The father is represented by the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who left all of heaven's glory. He came to earth and was born in a stinking manger. A place where the feeding trough of the animals. He came to earth to bore the shame and humility. To embrace the repentant sinner who come to him in faith. 
and he gives them complete forgiveness and reconciliation. When you look at Luke 15, the prodigal, he was lost in verse number 24. Jesus Christ says, I am the way. In verse number 17, the prodigal was ignorant. Jesus says, I am the truth. In verse number 24, the prodigal was dead. Jesus said, I am the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The gospel is clear. Jesus died for this prodigal son. Jesus died for lost sinners. Jesus died for all the world. God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God committed his love, commendeth his love toward us. He demonstrated his love to us. And that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. So that today, with faith, that we would confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God hath raised him, Jesus Christ, from the dead, we too can be saved today. So the story of Jesus is telling comes to an abrupt end. The abrupt ending is one that we won't study this morning. It's in verses 26 through 32. The abrupt ending is that in verse 32, it was meet that we should have make merry and be glad for this thy brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. We do know the older brother is now bitter, angry. He refuses to celebrate the lost sinner coming home. Why has he responded so shamefully? We're going to dig into that tonight to see the exposure of the true heart. It's interesting about the older son. We would think that the older son has done what he's supposed to do. He was always supportive, but now the heart begins to be revealed. The older son can be compared to the religious crowd, the Pharisees, the scribes, of how it should be handled and how it should be done. There's no way that a sinner should be received. There's no way that the sins should be forgiven. There's no way that punishment should not be happening. And we find here the shameful response. But today, we see the beautiful picture of grace. What a sinner needed rescuing. And once was lost and now he's found. I close with a song called Rescue where it sums up this best. He says, there is good news for the captive. Good news for the shamed. There is good news for the one who walked away. There is good news for the doubter, the one religion failed. For the good Lord has come to seek and save. He's our rescuer. He's our rescuer. We are free from sin forevermore. Oh, how sweet the sound. Oh, how grace abounds. We will praise the Lord, our rescuer. He is beauty for the blind man, riches for the poor. He is friendship for the one the world ignores. He is pasture for the weary, rest for those who strife. For the, Lord, for the good Lord is the way, the truth, the life. He's our rescuer. We are free from sin forevermore. Oh, how sweet the sound. Oh, how grace abounds. We will praise the Lord, our rescuer. Jesus is grace. And may we never forget that. Break down barriers. Build relationships and plant gospel seeds. Because the reality is, is there's a world all around us dying and going to hell that don't have the hope that the prodigal had. But we can share it, the love of Jesus, if we'll just go and tell.